Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you across the province here on this Thursday afternoon. Thanks for spending some time with us here this afternoon. Later in the hour, the time to do away with the Arrive Can app. There have been a lot of problems with the app. Some digital privacy experts uh, are growing increasingly concerned. We'll get into that after 2.30. But off the top in this hour, uh, an issue that's getting a lot more attention as it should. Look, a big part of the inflation story in recent months has been increases in food prices. And a lot of those food prices have been driven by food shortages. Ukraine, for example, uh, there's been major disruptions in commodities, and as such, commodity prices have increased. So there's a need to, to add to world supply of wheat and grain and other commodities. And there's concern that policies being looked at by the federal government could actually mean reductions in Canada's production levels. And so that's got farmers really concerned. Now, this all concerns the government's climate strategy and targets. Part of those targets involve fertilizer, nitrogen specifically. So the government wants to reduce emissions from fertilizer by 30% by 2030. Now, when it comes to the agriculture industry, you know, the argument is that, look, we're already very efficient when it comes to the use of nitrogen. And these kinds of ambitious targets could reduce not just emissions, but overall production. The government insists that this doesn't have to reduce fertilizer use or by extension output. But I think the concern in the agriculture industry is that it, it, it very may will. And that would be a big problem for farmers and by extension, I think, for Canadians. Well, joining us to talk about where things are at, what the concern is about trying to achieve these targets. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stephen Vandervonk, uh, who's uh, Alberta VP for Western Canada Wheat Growers Association, a fourth generation farmer himself, much more at wheatgrowers.ca. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, time you're giving to this. Well, and I think, you know, it, it certainly des- is deserving of attention, obviously, given the implications here. So, first of all, where are things at right now in terms of any kind of consultation still underway or or the targets themselves? Sure. So, yeah, they, they have announced they have consultations till the end of the month, which... Again, they are not backing away. They've even doubled down here in the last few days that they are not backing away from the net reduction number that they're that they're going to impose. And so, uh, and they keep saying this is going to be voluntary and this is going to be not mandatory. But yeah, we've all been down that road with with them. So, uh, so it's a huge concern, not just for farmers, but for uh, consumers in Canada and especially for importing countries around the world. Right. So let's talk about what these targets represent. So the government says a 30% reduction in emissions by 2030. They admit that this is ambitious, but they say it doesn't have to result in in a reduction of fertilizer use or by extension output. But what do you see as the consequences then of of expecting farmers to meet these targets? Yeah, it's very, very clear. And and there's no gray zone in this. If they're talking about a 30% reduction in, in emissions, that basically correlates into a direct 30% reduction in, in fertilizer use, example, nitrogen. Um, farmers have spent the last 40 years, especially the last 20, getting, we are so efficient with how we place our fertilizer. I've, in, on my farm, I've literally spent millions of dollars on equipment to get it as efficient as we can be. Uh, we place the fertilizer with the seed in the ground, um, so there is no, um, there's no room. There's lots of examples we can get into about how we don't overlap even an inch on our equipment, all this technology, and, and none of that's being given credit for. So it's very frustrating, and we're just downright confused. We just don't understand uh, what, what, what's going on here, to be totally honest about it. Right. And even just in, in the last few months, I mean, as we've seen um, fertilizer cost increase, you know, there's you know, even a further need, right, for farmers to be as efficient as possible. We, we work on, there's a reason why farms are owned 97% by family farms. Corporate farming doesn't work. There's not enough profit in it. We literally spend a generation paying off our investment, 20, 30, 40 years. If we're not efficient, we, we work on under 2% returns on investment. If we are not 100% efficient, uh, we're not in business. And so fertilizer is so expensive. It's our number one cost. So for us to give to let off nitrous, nitrous oxide, that, those emissions that they're talking about, that only means we're losing fertilizer into the atmosphere. And we're not in the business to even lose any fertilizer. So, and, and we don't. I reject, actually, most of what they're 
their assumptions are and their modeling. It's 20, 30-year-old data. Farming in Western Canada, it, it, we don't do any of that anymore. So, Right. When it comes to our output right now, I mean, has, has Canada ba- managed to increase output in recent years? Where, where are we at, first of all, in terms of, of our overall output? So you're, you're, you make a very good point because they are using, and they keep saying it, a, a, a baseline number of 2020, and we have to hit those net targets. It has nothing to do with, example, what we've done in the last 20, 10 to 20 years. We would literally grow twice as much food with equal amount of inputs, but that's not being considered. Even going forward, they're not saying any increase in production per unit of fertilizer still doesn't count. It's a net reduction to 2020 levels. So what do you say to that? They're saying they're consulting, but they're not. They have their numbers and they're sticking to it. It's, it's, It's very, very difficult. Right. There was a report done by Fertilizer Canada warned that Canada could lose 160 million metric tons of canola corn in spring wheat. Uh, you know, from 2023 to 2030 under this plan. Yep. That, that's a significant reduction in supply. We've seen the disruption, obviously, given what's happened yep. in Ukraine and how that affects food prices. That, that that would have a huge impact, it seems. Yeah, I mean, again, you see the minister and even some of his uh, cabinet out in the world stage saying that, oh, Canada is going to make up for the shortfall from Ukraine and from other droughts around the world. Mm-hmm. And then on this other side of their mouth, they're saying, okay, well, we're going to impose this reduction, which means literally a 30% reduction in nitrogen, which literally means a 30% reduction in yield. It's basically one-to-one. I mean, it's, it's no different than asking a factory, okay, we need you to reduce your energy consumption by 30%. What does that mean? 30% less of whatever they're producing. It's, it's really that simple. Right. So what what would be a reasonable approach? Does the government need to rethink these targets? Does the government need to, you know, offer more support to industry, whether it comes to, you know, technology or anything else? Like, how could we move forward in a reasonable way here, do you think? Well, a reasonable way would be to recognize that we've, like I said, spent millions of dollars on, on equipment. Like, my tractor can sit in downtown Calgary and clean the air. That's how clean they run. We spend $70,000 just on on emissions control on tractors that get used for $200 a year. None of this stuff is being given credit for. And, and on top of all that, agriculture, we're net negative. We already sequester more carbon, more carbon, uh, more greenhouse gases by the function of what we grow than it takes to grow that stuff. And they, they, they don't, they don't, they, they refuse to give us credit for that. They just refuse, 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 refuse. And it's just a matter of, no, we got to have this reduction. And it's just like, what, what more can we do? My, my cedar, I'm 84 feet wide. We don't overlap one inch. Our sprayer, same thing, 35, 135 feet wide. Each nozzle is individually controlled. So as soon as you hit anywhere where you spray it, it shuts off. All this technology we've spent, we spent doing for the last 20 years is just like, sorry, now you have to start from, from today's levels. You're like, well, sorry, I've already, I'm as efficient as I possibly can be. So now I guess I just have to cut my rates, which is... Yeah hugely detrimental to the uh, to already record high food prices in Canada. And and this is a huge issue for Canada is one of the very few consistent exporting countries around the world. And so those countries that depend on Canada for, for the food is are, are definitely in jeopardy. Well, no kidding. I mean, everything farmers have to deal with over the last couple of years uh, and, you know, higher costs and everything else. And now to have to face this. I mean, yeah, it's the frustration is, is there. That's, you know, an existential crisis, I think, for a lot of operations. We've seen in the Netherlands where, you know, the government there is taking a similar approach with their climate targets where farmers there have just, you know, they're, they're beyond frustrated. We've seen massive protests and, you know, that, that frustration is brewing here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. This will be taken lightly. I, I know there hasn't been much coverage in Canada about what's happening in the Netherlands, but I mean, that country's been shut down. I mean, and taking it to the next level past what, but where we could end up is Sri Lanka, where they're just out of food completely because of government policy. And I think the government had to flee. The, the, the population just uprose and took over the buildings, and they had to flee. And so it's, it's, it's something where, listen, we're in Western Canada. We have a huge land base, very few people. We export 90% of what we grow. I'm not suggesting there's food shortages coming. Definitely price hikes coming, yeah. but not food shortages. But it definitely is a problem. Uh, around the world for places like Egypt or places like that who, who, who depend on other countries for their food.
Absolutely. Well, we'll keep following this much more at wheatgrowers.ca. Stephen, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again. Uh, Stephen Vandervalk, Alberta VP with Western Canada Wheat Growers Association, a fourth-generation farmer here in Alberta himself. That's the reality of what they're dealing with. And I think, you know, that's the concern from industry. Look, the idea that they're just needlessly wasting fertilizer, it just, that's not the reality. So when government says to farmers, well, you got to get more efficient, and the farmers are saying, how? We already are. You know, given the cost of fertilizer right now, like, of course we are. Who would be stupid enough to, to be wasteful for those reasons? So, yeah, if we're at the point where, realistically, we can't get more efficient than we already are, then, yeah, an emissions reduction equates to uh, an output reduction. At a time when, you know, food supply, food prices is such a paramount concern. Why on earth would we take any steps that could potentially reduce what Canada is able to grow, what we're able to produce, what we're able to provide, not just to Canadians, but to the world? So why the government's so intransigent on this, I, I don't know. Maybe they just, you don't want to concede. Once you've announced a policy, you don't want to acknowledge that, oh, maybe we screwed up. Welcome back. Well, if you've uh, traveled out of the country, uh, you're well aware of the expectation that exists for you to fill out the Arrive Can app. It's also a requirement for anybody traveling to this country. And I think that's been part of the concern about uh, the tourism industry in this country, whether this is uh, discouraging international visitors, particularly Americans. But what is the app accomplishing? The government believes it's necessary to keep Canadians safe, and it sounds like it's something that could become a permanent feature of international travel. We had a story recently regarding a glitch with the app. Not the first time we've, we've heard of these problems. This one sent messages, erroneous messages, to more than 10,000 travelers telling them they needed to quarantine, which they didn't. Apparently, as Global News learned, took the government 12 days to notify travelers of the error. So there's problems with the app. But is it enough just to fix those problems? Is this app accomplishing anything? And what are the concerns, not just in terms of what happens when these problems arise, but, you know, other privacy concerns uh, around this app, the information it's gathering, what's being done with that information. So it's something that uh, digital privacy experts are becoming more concerned about. I think there needs to be a conversation about the purpose of this app and what the trade-offs are when it comes to, to maintaining it. Joining us for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Bianca Wiley, a senior fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation, partner with Digital Public, uh, much more at uh, her own website, BiancaWiley.com. Bianca, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, so what's your sense of, of why we still have this app, or at least, you know, the government's case for why Arrive Can needs to remain? So the stated case as of now is border modernization, mm -hmm. um, but it started with public health in 2020. And so I think we should talk about that. But as of right now, the idea is we want to more, you know, modernize the border, make it so it's quicker for people who want to do customs declaration using this technology. But the, the fact that it shifted from this is, you know, we're in a public health crisis. We need you to use this app for public safety to now we're modernizing the borders. Like those, those are very, very different uses and cases right. and reasons. So, yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. So the, the justification 17 shifted. Does, is, is that a concession, do you think, from the government that this is no longer about public health? Like it doesn't feel like this is accomplishing anything in, in the realm of public health at this point. Yeah, I don't. What I know is it's helpful for us to go back to 2020, because what I found out a few months ago is that there was arrive can um, voluntary use available to people before the pandemic. So what, one thing we need to know about the history is that the federal government wanted this sort of a program to exist before the pandemic. And so I think when the pandemic started and then there's this opportunity to implement something like this, um, you know, that there was a pre-existing desire to do this. So, you know, in terms of whether it's a concession or it's just sort of an evolution and you're leveraging a public health crisis to pull it off. I mean, they were hoping to do this before the pandemic. Right. Uh, obviously, when it came to uh, vaccination status, I mean, it was it was one way, I guess, in which travelers could, you know, have that information readily available. But I mean, there are other countries that require proof of vaccination for anyone entering or returning to the country. Canada is kind of unique in 
you know, putting it all on, on an app like this. Well, yeah, there's, again, to go back to 2020, I think some really important history, and I want all of us to know something, which is we're currently under the Quarantine Act, and that was the rationale that was used for this app to be mandatory. And so when, when we get into the realm, and I don't know how many of us know about this, but we, we are in the world of emergency powers here, which means you get into extraordinary rationale and, and governments can do things you know, that are reactive to a crisis. Um, and so when, when we go back to the beginning, what we need to understand is there never had to be an app Okay, like when people came into the country, um, we have kiosks at the airports, we have forms, we have, you know, people working at the borders. And I think fundamentally, we need to remember, this never had to be an app. Um, And the decision to make it an app in 2020, where we know there are equity issues, some people, this is how I learned of this app, some people are not comfortable, or do not have smartphones or you can also log in on the web Mm -hmm. they don't have access to the internet they're not comfortable with an email address and using it this is this this is a chunk of our population um and this is a public service and so i want us to understand that in 2020 the government made a decision to just say we know all of the limitations and we're going to make this mandatory anyway and i think that's a significant thing for us to pay attention to because we know people have had bad experiences with this from the beginning, just from the perspective of trying to, you know, be at the border and they didn't have an option. And and I want us to understand something else. As far as I can tell, we've never had a mandatory mobile app used in this country ever mandatory. Mm -hmm. And the privacy commissioner in 2020 was very clear and said, if you want to build trust and make sure you have consent from people when you use technology like this, it has to be voluntary because what I want us to, you know, both, both be on page about is some people like this app. They think sure. it's helpful. They, they prefer it. They were using it before the pandemic. Fine. That's fine. Right. And if that's your choice, great, but it should not be mandatory. And so I think what we should be looking at right now is shifting this out of mandatory use into voluntary use. And the fact that it's being mandatory for this long and that it ever was is pretty significant from a, democratic perspective because you know there's no other way to go about it this is a public service this is not like an app on our phone about a coffee or delivering the food this is our public service right and it's significant because it it can um, how our public services work impact our rights you talked about the glitch you talked about people getting notices to stay in their home that were wrong it's not that's not a small oopsie with the mm-hmm. technology you know like this is significant and i think that like sort of looking at how long this has gone on for, what we really need to understand is we, the public, have very limited recourse. Because I can tell you from a governance perspective, there's all kinds of things going wrong here. People can see it, but what what's our move? Where do we go? What's our redress? How do we get it to shift out of being mandatory use? Unclear. Like that's not good in a democracy. Is this not a step with our, our digital uh, you know, our privacy laws in this country, either by the letter of the law or, or the spirit of the law, it, it certainly seems to fly in the face of some of these established principles. Well, here we come back to the problem with the fact that it has it is being used under the Quarantine Act, which, and this is where we have to remember, even if the government collected our information in a form or through a verbal exchange with someone, they would still have the power to use it in all kinds of different ways. That's what the quarantine act says, right? So we have to be careful to separate the power that they have to use our information from the issue of it being uh, used through technology, because we still have a problem with not knowing how information is being used um, under the quarantine act. But just to simplify this to the app and to the idea of a smartphone app or um, you know a website that you have to log into, People had told me they were standing in airports uploading their passport, you know, in, in an airport, not, you know, not in Canada. Um, that's very eyebrow raising for someone who would be concerned about, you know, giving people good habits as how to manage very sensitive information. So in some ways, we can talk about the laws and we can talk about how this is out of step with some of the laws and the intent around is it necessary, is it proportional? Yeah, but it's also... Um, not great practice, just generally speaking. Like, if you don't need to have a technology like this that opens up all kinds of risks and liabilities, you don't do it. You don't make it mandatory. So there's really a sort of 
lack of stewardship, of responsible stewardship. When you run a technology program, you really have to be thoughtful to all of the potential risks and vulnerabilities. So that's just on a tech level. But last thing on the privacy and the legal side, we know that privacy and data protection, these are the words that a lot of our laws use. There's nothing in there from the decision that was made, which is we shouldn't have this at all, or is this something we need? Um, so we don't really have a good legal place to situate the fact that the government made an app mandatory, despite the fact that lots of people were going to struggle with that decision, right? So it's not just that this is not in step or spirit with our laws, because it's not, our, our general ones, non-emergency power. Then we have to realize we don't have good recourse or redress, and they're just able to do this. And everyone's looking around saying, okay, so what do we do? And here we've got public health rationale is no longer what's being used, but that's why we have a mandatory, you know, border modernization app. So in very short language, this bait and switch going on, we've got totally different departments involved at the federal government, and they just sort of shifted it from one thing to the other using a really, you know, it's a scary time. We're, we're in a pandemic, like we're in a crisis. So this isn't exactly the right time to be, you know, uh, being unclear with people about how things work and why. And so there's no, you know, there's really lacking governance and proper transparency and accountability measures here. Big time. Yeah. Well, when it comes to transparency, I mean, with the, the, the design of the app itself, the underlying technology, I mean, part of it was apparently designated as, as a trade secret. So there's a lot we can't even know about how Correct. this app operates. But, you know, Canadians need to know that any app we're using, especially one we're required to use, that we can trust, that we know how it works. We know what's being done with the data. But do we in this case? In this case, no. And I think, so there's a few levels of what's closed here. We don't have access to the code, so it's not open source. You can't have outside parties take a look at how it's working. So that's a major problem. The issue you raised um, as to how it's being designate, designated that you can't even access it, you know, if you try to, um, is a problem. Then we've got the issue, there's no public governance about this in terms of how decisions are made, how it's used, efficacy, is it working, how would we know if it's working, and the budget for this um, has gone up. Uh, it's good now, like I, it's past the $40 million mark. Um, it's not going to be, this app won't be complete until September of next year. So there's basically happening in what we call in technology a black box. Like you can't see anything. You can't see how it works. You can't see how decision-making happens. You can't see how to hold anyone accountable. You can't see where the data is going. Um, it's just rife with lack, like there's no oversight. And there's no mechanism for us to understand what's happening other than the slow work to doing, you know, access to information requests, which again, in a democracy, it's, it's not, that is not a sustainable way for us to understand how this information is being used. And again, to keep going back to it, this is mandatory. Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to use something as a mandatory measure, you would think you as the government would be ready to be highly defensible. Why are we doing it? How do we know it's working? What do you do if something goes wrong? And that can bring us to the glitch. One of the things that was happening there, people were just sort of expected to know, oh, it's just, it's, it's a glitch. It's not working. It's not like the government was proactively messaging about that. They weren't coming out and saying, oh, you know what? We found something out and making a big public message about it, which is what they should have done. It was one of these issues where it just sort of became like, hmm, let's just hope people know it's, it's a glitch. How, how would you possibly think that's defensible, right? So, so many different lines of sort of a lack of responsible governance here. Like it's really, it's really bad from a technical perspective, but worse from a democratic perspective. Right. So salvaging this is, is going to be tricky. I think, you know, making it, it optional would be an important place to start. But if indeed there's a case to be made for modernizing the border, making it easier on travelers, digitizing customs and some other aspects, if we were genuinely interested in, in going down that path, would it look a lot different than what we have now? I think the process should look different. I mean, would the app work like this, uh, like how it works today? Unclear to me. I mean, I think one thing to keep coming back to is the government is automating the quarantine act. So they're basically taking humans out of the way that a public service is delivered. That's something as important as telling you, Hey, you have to stay home and we have to talk to each other because we're in a crisis. Right? So the decision the government made to automate that function is not how I, you know, if I think about being a product manager, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't automate that. That's just too important. That's not something you would leave open to a glitch. Like, again, oops, <laughs> nope, that wasn't real. You can, you know, you, that threat about jail and fines, like, oh, sorry, <laughs> that was wrong. Like, this is, to me, it's really inane that you would ever even conceive of automating something that important to your rights and to a democracy. But that ship has sailed. In terms of modernizing and using the app as it was intended, I think, in the spring of 2020, Sure, you know, like if you want to have a form and people prefer and they feel like they understand the risks of using apps for things like uploading passport photos, um, it, that's called informed consent. Could we use this app in the future? Plausibly. Some people really like it. And that's like what I, what I keep trying to you know, work at here in our country is thinking, how do we make it so you can have choice? Because I think choice is fundamentally what we need to talk about. If you want an app like this, you like how it works, you're comfortable with the risks, you have informed consent, you know what it means to be sharing this information, you know, through a phone or a web browser, go for it. That is by no means all of the population. So how do we protect and invest in alternatives, right? We have kiosks, we have people, we have forms, you know, we've got a labor force in the public service. So I think it's really about opening our mind to making alternative investments to make sure that we have redundancy. Because also what happened one day here in Toronto, we had an internet outage. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens when these systems completely melt down and fail? Like you cannot make these things, there's no redundancy. So in order to have a good fallback strategy, you invest in other ways to do it. So I really think some of the development is probably quite standard. And given that they were working on this before the pandemic, some of it, sure. But in terms of like, this procurement that was never done publicly, they contracted with people that had worked for the government before. None of that was, you know, out in the open. Specs, code, all of that, all of that should have still been out in the open, even just in a standard sort of, you know, border modernization project. So if, if we just hive off all the public health issues and all of the rationale that doesn't even make sense anymore, it still wasn't done well. We got to leave it there. Some great insight, Bianca. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Bianca Wiley, Senior Fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation, partner with Digital Public. Uh, her thoughts on some of the problems with the ArriveCan app, how the government's been using it, what needs to change. Well, you wouldn't think that an essay writing contest for young women would uh, somehow turn into a national and international embarrassment for the Alberta government. Yet, that's what happened. And it's not exactly clear how or who's to blame here. So this was something that was announced back in February. It was an essay writing contest for young women aged 17 to 25. It's called the Her Vision Essay Contest. And this week we saw the winners, the three winners. Now, maybe there were only three entries, which maybe would explain how one of them ended up as the third place entry. But of course, there were many more. How this was selected as a winner, we still don't know. We don't even know who was involved in selecting the winner. But yes, this has received national and international coverage uh, because of the content of this third place essay. One that reads in part to try to promote that women break into careers that men traditionally dominate is not only misguided, but is harmful. Goes on to say, while it is sadly popular nowadays to think that the world would be better off without humans or that Alberta children are unnecessary as we can import foreigners to replace ourselves, this is a sick mentality that amounts to a drive for cultural suicide. So some of it's kind of jaw-dropping to say the least. I think a lot of people read that and wondered, like, is this some kind of weird joke? Uh, there was no joke. And look, we don't know who wrote the essay. And, you know, maybe we should be careful about casting too many aspersions on this young woman. We don't know, I guess, much about her at all. Maybe there's a need for some compassion here. I, I don't know. But ultimately, I think the accountability side of things falls to the people responsible. Those who are reading and judging these essays and whoever thought, hey, this is great. Let's highlight this one as though this is somehow a positive message for young Alberta women to hear. So it's generated a lot of reaction, much of it's angry and frustrated, as you might imagine. 
Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about this whole controversy and what it tells us, I guess, about this government or this this province. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sarah Elder Chamonero, owner and CEO of Madame Premier, host of the Elected Podcast. Uh, you can read more at madamepremier.com, including their response to this whole controversy. Sarah, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. So I can only imagine what went through your mind as you were first reading this yesterday. What was your uh, initial reaction? Well, I mean, when I first started to read it, um, and I had actually seen it the night before because it was um, the first time I saw it was actually shared by um, Edmonton MLA Janice Irwin. And it kind of felt like my stomach was falling out of my body um, because of the views uh, that were expressed in the essay are so harmful. Um, and it was just absolutely astonishing to me that this essay was selected as one of the winning essays um, when it, it, it goes against everything that I think that we believe as a society now in 2022. Um, and that for the Associate Minister of Women, um, UCP MLA, and a woman herself, Mm-hmm. to have um, potentially selected this essay as, as one of the best is really is really shocking. I mean, it seems like this kind of a, 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 an exercise, doing this kind of essay contest and, and giving young women a voice and sharing these ideas, like, you know, there's, there's something positive that can come from that, but it just feels like in this whole exercise, all of that's been lost here, right? This just turned into a big fiasco. I definitely agree. I think that actually, I, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with having an essay contest yeah. um, that encourages um, young people and young women to talk about what they would do um, if they were elected to the legislature. Because I actually think we need more of that in our society. It's actually, um, you know, politicians and politics have a really bad reputation, um, right, both rightly and wrongly. But we do need more good people in politics. And we especially need more women in politics, and we need more people from marginalized backgrounds. We need more. Uh, we need, need more diversity in politics, so that the decisions that are being made on behalf of all of us are better. And that's what this essay misses out on by reducing um, even just me as an Albertan woman, uh, focusing on my quote-unquote strength to give birth. Um, mm-hmm talking about importing foreigners to replace ourselves and when we when she the essay writer says ourselves you know that we need to take a really hard look in the mirror and think about what does that mean that means specifically they're talking about white people and this is you know very coded kind of dog whistle like language um about you know theories of replacement and um you know, this is, it's just, it's really, really, really damaging um, for the person to say in the essay that women are not exactly equal to men. I mean, I, I, I dare anyone to have a conversation with, um, with a woman in their lives and for them to tell them how they are unequal. That's just simply not the case. That's simply not true. What we're, women and marginalized people are still actually fighting for in Alberta, in Canada and around the world actually is equity and equality. Um, and so, you know, it would be, if this, if this person who wrote this essay was given hopefully the, an opportunity to do a redo after having some time to reflect on the feedback that's been given, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really, I would be, I would hope that they would be able to reflect and maybe come at this from a different place. Yeah, look, obviously we don't know anything about, uh, you know, yeah. this young woman or, you know, her own views or how those views were shaped. And I mean, obviously mm-hmm. she's, she's entitled to her views, whatever those happen to be. So it's not so much, I mean, the story's not so much about her, is it? I mean, is ultimately this about those who were in a position of responsibility here to oversee this contest, to pick and judge the winners? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, we can't pretend that these views don't exist in our society, but for them to be highlighted in this way to be chosen. Um, you know, there are so many questions that I have about how this contest was handled. It was run through the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. So the Legislative Assembly is a multi-partisan body that is actually supposed to be representative of, you know, all parties that make up members of the legislature. So why is it that only the UCP members um, had a role in judging this contest? Why weren't the NDP included? And for anyone who's going to say, you know, oh, you know, that's 
just they it wasn't their place they're not in government this isn't about government if you really understand how a legislature works and i understand that it is a little bit nerdy and a little bit you know getting into the weeds but it's actually not a partisan body and so they should have been there should have been representation from the ndp on this committee they should have been able to equally evaluate you know the contributions nathan cooper as the Speaker of the Legislative Assembly definitely had a role to play. His office, and he has an office, has should have had a role to play in this. For everyone now to say, you know, I'm not going to comment on this. I don't know what's going on. Um, you know, to not be fully transparent about how this happened and why um, really lets down, um, you know, us. Uh, it, it's just absolutely... It's incredible. It leaves me speechless, speechless at times to think that um, this essay was selected and it raises serious questions about the associate minister uh, for women and um, Jackie Armstrong, Hominick, and, you know, her, her suitability in this role. Um, you know, it was only in 2011 that Alberta, we had our first female premier, Alison Redford. Alberta women only got the right to vote in 1916, and that was because of a legislature made up entirely of men decided to give us the vote. Indigenous people in Alberta weren't even granted the vote in, until 1965. You know, there's so many things that these essays could have focused on that the minister could have encouraged people to write about, that the work of encouraging people, women, to run in politics could have been done. And that's really what I want to focus on is that we actually, we do need more women in politics. We need more girls to be educated about running for politics, about careers like the one that I had, not as an elected, as an elected official, but as working for staff, as a staffer. There, there's so much work to be done because we still have so far to go in terms of equity and equality. Um, and this really just completely missed the mark. And now Alberta, unfortunately, is reaping the benefits of this internationally and nationally, yet again, uh, as an embarrassing story. It is. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Is there any silver lining, though, in, in the way that Albertans have reacted and, and maybe some of the conversations that, that this has all prompted? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I've received a lot of feedback saying, you know, like, this is absolutely shocking. I can't believe that, you know, this is what's you know, being selected as, as a prize-winning essay. So obviously it's great that we get to talk about, you know, the importance of electing more women and marginalized people in politics. Um, but I wish that was just, you know, the good news story that we were talking about rather than having it attached to an incredibly offensive, racist, misogynistic um, essay. You know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's really, really alarming. I mean, there's one quote um, from the essay that says, quote, to try and promote that women break into careers that men traditionally dominate is not only misguided, but it is harmful, end quote. You know, um, essentially, any woman having um, a career outside of the home, you know, to this person, essentially, um, is misguided and harmful. That's just not the world that we live in. We're still fighting for equity and equality. Women want to be able to choose their own destinies and we should there's it's the fact that we're still having this conversation that if women can you know have control over bodily autonomy if you know being given the right to vote by we've been given you know given all of these different things in society by men it's just it's it's we have still so much work to do um and so as happy as i am to be talking to you today um, you know, it's really disappointing and frustrating. But again, I want to go back to, you know, if, if reading this essay made you frustrated, if it, you know, lit a fire inside of you and sparked something, then really explore that because maybe your the response to this is actually running yourself. If you're a woman who read this and it made you upset because, um, you know, you can be activated into politics in different ways and maybe this will light a fire for some. Good point. We'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned at MadamPremier.com. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Uh, Sarah Elder Chamanera, owner, CEO of Madam Premier, host of the L Acted podcast, E-L-L-E. Uh, and um, you can read her thoughts on all of this again, MadamPremier.com. Now, ultimately, look, this isn't a free speech issue. Don't get tricked into thinking it's that. Look, if there's an essay contest, you have the freedom to write and submit anything.
ridiculous, silly, stupid, hateful, whatever. Not about that. And that's not the issue. The issue here is for the Alberta government to do this. And so obviously the purpose is then to highlight what you think are worthwhile and positive messages, the kinds of messages you would want to promote to young women. That's the issue, that this was picked as something worth highlighting. So it's not a commentary on the essay writer per se. She's entitled to her views. We don't know anything about her. It's not really about her. It's about the associate minister and whoever else was involved. She was involved, that much we know. Uh, but they haven't said who else was. Some UCP MLAs have felt compelled to stand up and say, hey, I wasn't involved. Others have, have uh, condemned this. Uh, yeah, for example, Rebecca Schultz, one of the women running to be Alberta's next premier. As an example here, it's a disgrace that an essay saying women are not equal to men won an award sponsored by government. Women and their contributions are equally valuable and amazing, whether we are moms or not. Can't believe this needs to be said. Right. Now, I do almost wonder at some level if this was just kind of skimmed over, like not really read. And uh, someone just noticed the part about women having babies. It's like, okay, well, let's highlight all the different things women can do. And that's one of them. And we'll, that, we'll just throw that in there. I don't know. Because otherwise, it's almost impossible to fathom that somebody read that. Said, wow, that's great. What a great message for all young girls in the province to, to read and be exposed to. Let's pick this one as one of the winners. Of all the essays that were submitted. And again, we don't know how many, because they haven't said that either. That's the, the kind of gobsmacking part of all of this. That that was picked as a winner. And this wasn't like a grammar content, like who wrote the best essay. And frankly, this is a pretty poorly worded essay. If you just want to judge it based on, on grammar and structure and all of that. No, it was about ideas. And ultimately, it was about, let's pick the ideas we think are, are important to promote. And that's subjective, obviously, at some level. But I think this is clearly a case where uh, that's not a message you want to promote. That's not a message the government wants to endorse. People are free to hold that opinion or express it. The question is, should government endorse it? Clearly not. back for a while we've been hearing about the idea of a, a great resignation this this concept that almost seemed like kind of a mythical boogeyman sort of looming over the the job market and by extension the canadian economy that we hadn't really seen manifest but maybe we're starting to see it now as noted in the globe and mail last week's july employment report from statistics canada revealed that a record 300,000 canadians have retired over the past 12 months that's up nearly 30% from the same time last year, nearly 15% from the months leading up to the pandemic. And it's not just an anomaly. It continues a surge in retirement numbers that began this spring. So what do we, first of all, what are we to make of that? Why is it happening now? What are the broader implications for the job market and for the Canadian economy? Already we're seeing problems, hearing of problems of job shortages labor shortages uh, in some sectors and some industries, something this will obviously exacerbate. I don't think it's, it's easy enough to just say, well, you know, young people can fill those jobs, creates more opportunities. I, I think it's more consequential and concerning than that. Well, our next guest is taking a close look at this, his latest note, asking the questions, will Canadians retire themselves into a recession? Stephen Brown, Senior Canada Economist for Capital Economics, capitaleconomics.com, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Stephen, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Great. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, so that seems like a, a, a pretty massive jump in the number of retirements in this country. What, what do you make of those numbers we saw? Yeah, it certainly is. So the weird thing really was that in during, I mean, when the pandemic first hit, we did see an initial rise in retirements, not a huge one, but it certainly did happen during that first sort of series of lockdowns. But then the number of retirements actually fell very sharply over, say, 20, late 2020 and 2021. And that was in very sharp contrast to the US, where retirements were very high throughout the pandemic. And 
you know, so what we're seeing now is sort of a, a catch-up effect. It's, I'm not entirely sure why retirements fell so much. Maybe it was just for restrictions. People felt if they did retire, they couldn't make the most of them. Maybe they were a bit concerned about whether they had, um, you know, enough funds to retire, given the uncertainty around how the pandemic would affect markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're now seeing that sort of situation reverse with with a vengeance. So it's a, a record number of retirements, 300,000. And, and that's 25,000 people per month. And just to put that in perspective, just before, in the months before the pandemic, employment was rising by about 25,000 each month. So what we're seeing is, is sort of the, the average amount of employment growth in, in normal years is you know, already being offset by the number of retirements. So that's got some pretty big implications for, for businesses and, and how the economy um, might grow in the future. I mean, should we be concerned that we're going to continue to see these numbers surge or, you know, does, does this eventually level off at some point? Yeah, so I, I think we've probably seen most of it. So one way to think about this is to look at the, the shares of people over the age of 55 that are working. And that, that was fairly constant in the years before the pandemic. And then it rose after the pandemic as people delayed retirement. But because of the surge in retirement that we've seen so far this year, the share of people in those sort of potential retirement age groups is now looking sort of more in line with, with the norm. Uh, so it, it would seem quite strange to see a further pickup from here. But, you know, because the population is aging, you know, the, the share of a population that's over 55 continues to increase and the absolute number as well. So it's, we're not likely to see retirements drop back either. This is probably the, the new normal. The, the labour market is going to have to cope with around 25,000 people leaving it every month. And so we do need to offset that in some way, be it with more young people coming into the workforce or, or more likely higher immigration. Right. And obviously, you know, this this is affecting the job market and the job numbers because we did see a, a fall in employment over June and July. But, you know, maybe that's partly because of, a, you know, fewer jobs. But obviously, when you got people retiring and they're out of the job market, then that's that's going to have a big impact on, you know, the overall picture, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things here. So there is about a bit of a question whether there's some weakening in the economy. And we, we are seeing that in a couple of sectors, for instance. Uh, real estate being the obvious one, sort of weakening across the country. But in general, one of the interesting things we saw was uh, in the employment data for July, the, there was a, a sort of big rise in retirements, 30,000 people left the labour force, and there was a big drop in it, um, employment in the education sector. And that sort of says to me that maybe a lot of the retirements were the teachers uh, decided to retire at the end of the school year. So it's one of these weird seasonal effects where we, we get retirements grouped into certain months based on, you know, maybe the, the educational year or maybe just the, the fact that maybe people want to retire at the start of the summer rather than in the middle of the winter. Um, but, yeah, it is an issue in terms of, you know, not just the labour market, but in terms of economic growth and, and the level of GDP. So if there are fewer people working, it, it means there needs to be, uh, you know, either other people have to do more work or, or the level of economic activity does decline. Um, it's it's strange. It would be weird to say it would be, you know, it's not an outright recession in terms of, because when we, when we talk recession, we tend to mean, you know, economic activity falls, but we also say have a big rise in the unemployment rate. And that's definitely not what we see when we have retirements because, the unemployment rate is, you know, it's people looking for a job but can't find one. These people no longer want a job, so yeah. the unemployment rate remains near a record low. But it, it does have some sort of interesting consequences in terms of, say, a regional picture. So, I, sort of, I've looked at the numbers, and broadly speaking, the, the government's um, immigration targets would roughly offset the number of retirements that we're likely to see. So, in theory, across the country, employment could be broadly unchanged, but. In terms of a, a provincial basis, places like uh, Toronto, Vancouver tend to uh, attract a disproportionate share of those um, immigrants. So there's likely to be a, more of a burden from retirement on companies in, in other provinces such as Alberta and in smaller towns that maybe aren't as attractive for, for new arrivals from elsewhere. I mean, it does speak to what almost might seem like a paradox to people, the idea that you could have record low unemployment while at the same time seeing an economic slowdown, possibly even a recession. But I guess, you know, the the jobless numbers sort of obscure that that picture when it comes to output, when it comes to productivity. And, and that's what's contributing then potentially to an economic slowdown. Yeah, exactly. Part of this is is the, the sharp rise in, in price inflation this year. So, 
you know, we've essentially seen, um, well, at one point, a, a doubling of gasoline prices, of, of fuel costs for, for companies. So even if those companies remain profitable, they, they're not necessarily making as many profits so that they can continue, say, investing more in, in trying to boost output in the future. So they don't necessarily want to lose the workers they've got, but they're not willing to make those investments to help the economy grow a bit. And just, just generally, people can't afford to spend as much elsewhere. Um, but I mean, on that theme, it is, it is a bit strange to see a, a surge in retirements at the same time as we're seeing price inflation e- eating to val- the value of people's savings. And given we have seen a, sort of a value of equities and, and house prices in much of the country come down in the last few months, then that is one reason to think that maybe retirements won't rise much further. But, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing for the economic outlook either. So the idea that, you know, there are opportunities here for younger workers, which which may be true uh, at some level, but, you know, that, that's not going to replace, you know, these these huge numbers of retirements. No, no, there's, there's sort of two parts to that. One is, you know, if you if you lose someone who's been with your company for 30 years, even with the, the best uh, graduate in the world, say, they're not going to have the same level of productivity of skills to, to replace them on a like-for-like basis. And then there's also the issue that we've seen some pretty big structural changes in in the economy and the, the things that younger people are studying in the last sort of couple of decades. So maybe if we're talking about the mid-2000s, a lot of people at university were studying uh, engineering with the idea that they'd go into jobs in the oil and gas sector, into broader natural resource sectors, whereas nowadays a much higher proportion of those graduates are maybe studying computer science, have an eye on the tech sector. So even if the numbers in an absolute sense match up, they don't necessarily match up on a sectoral basis. And and this is one of the issues we're seeing across the whole of North America. There just aren't enough graduates in some of these. Uh, natural resources is, is the big one, really. It's not, yeah. not an attractive sector for people to go into anymore. So that's where we're going to see some of these labor, labor market issues. And by extension, where... Um, maybe we see continued up, upward pressure on prices of things of commodities because there aren't enough people to go into these areas. Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Much more is mentioned. CapitalEconomics.com. Stephen, really appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Yeah, it's great speaking to you. Speak Likewise. To you All the best. Stephen Brown, uh, Senior Candidate Economist to Capital Economics. So his uh, latest uh, look at the uh, situation in Canada, wondering whether Canadians will retire themselves into a recession. But the sharp increase in retirements this year presents downside risk to our forecast for employment and with GDP growth already faltering further raises the possibility that economic activity will contract. And I think it speaks to the bigger picture and why so many uh, experts have called for a focus on productivity. You know, our GDP is linked to our output. If we've got a shrinking workforce, we've got shrinking output. Our GDP isn't growing. And so how are we addressing that? I mean, at the moment, it doesn't feel like we are. So some of the jobless numbers kind of uh, obscure all of this, what's, what's going on here. But there's an interesting question. So we, we saw in Canada, as Stephen says, where we didn't see the same number of retirements that we were seeing in the U.S., sort of early or mid-pandemic. But it's definitely happened now. So maybe a lot of people were delaying retirements, and I think he outlines some of the reasons why people were, maybe just some of the economic uncertainty. Is it okay to retire now? Maybe let's just stick it out for a few more months. Uh, But now those numbers have surged. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.